1 Corinthians 11, and the Lord's Supper, the fourth talk in a series entitled What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on April 8, 2001, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. A brief break occurs in the middle of the following recording. It is the result of the original audio tape switching to the second side. We are going to finish, I hope, uh, the discussion about the Lord's Supper that we've been having for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have looked at what Jesus had to say in instituting the Supper, talked about it as a really a very significant modification of the Passover, taking the symbolism of the Passover that pointed to the deliverance that God had brought to the people of Israel um, in the Exodus and taking that and sort of turning our attention to the greater deliverance that Jesus brought about through his death on the cross. Uh, in the ceremony that he was instituting, we really are, in a way, saying we, we recognize that any worldly sort of deliverance, like what happened when Israel was rescued from Egypt, pales in comparison to the ultimate rescue, which is what Jesus brought about on the cross. Today what I want to do is turn our attention to other things in the New Testament that talk about the Lord's Supper uh, and fundamentally, we want to look at what Paul had to say. I would like to start by just asking the question. I want to explore a little bit again. Logan asked this question last week. Um, what is it that the New Testament is saying about the practice of the church regarding seemingly they would get together and we're told that they would break bread? Um, it seems to me that it's not so easy to make a final judgment exactly about what was going on there. Uh, first of all, we need to understand that when they talk about breaking bread, that that really is a way of talking about starting a meal. I mean, you bake bread, and you have this loaf of bread, and as you know, you can keep it. It will halt keep for a while. The crust is all around it, and it's fine. When it's time to eat, you're going to go and break it. And at that point, I mean, you break it when you're ready to eat. We see an example of this in Acts 27. Uh, there, Paul is on the boat. The boat is not finding land. They're trying to preserve their stores. Um, and in 33, we read... Um, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. I think it's pretty clear in this setting that the breaking of the bread, he gives thanks to God, which would be a very typical thing to do at a meal, 
But this is not a communion service. This is to, for the sailors on the boat and everyone there. Here, I'm, we're going to eat. We are going to find land. We are going to survive. I know this is true. And so let's eat, not worry about saving our stores. He breaks the bread and passes it out, and they all eat. So it's pretty clear there that by breaking bread, we just mean to have a meal, which is very common. I mean, this is the language that they used. In Acts chapter 2, which Jack has taken us through in the past here, we read they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, we kind of face a question there. Is this a meal that they were taking together, or is he actually talking about taking communion together? As we read on... um, They were living together. They were selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all. Remember, this is the situation right after Peter has preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost. There are many Jews there in Jerusalem who do not live there. They have come for the the festival. And so they sort of face this problem of coming up with a group Everybody is going to pool their resources together and take every care of everybody in this situation. Um, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So a couple of lines down, the picture is here, every day they're eating together breaking bread from house to house. In various houses, they are eating together and breaking bread. Um, It seems to me, I mean, perhaps we could conclude that they were having communion daily. I suppose that's possible. But it seems to me more straightforward to just see it as it is significant, but what they were all choosing to do was to eat together. They were every day, day by day. They They would hang out in the temple big courtyard area. The apostles would be preaching there and they would be listening to their teaching and other people would be coming up and listening and so on. And then at other times, they would go to various houses and they would eat together. Um, In Acts 20, verse 7, we read, Paul has come to visit and he is staying here for a week And it says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Okay, well, of course, I know this is a very serious situation, but it is just hard for somebody who does a lot of teaching in front of people not to laugh at this picture of somebody falling asleep while you're droning on and on and falling out the window. Um, I've always appreciated the fact that, I don't know if you know it, but um, 
I think it was Eternity magazine when it first got started, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, an anonymous column in that that he didn't put his name on. He put the uh, uh, pseudonym of Eutychus as the um, and the the column was called Eutychus and His Kin. I always thought that was kind of a cute thing. Um, but what the reason I'm pointing us to this here is that we have this situation on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Okay? Um, first day of the week, he probably means Sunday. He may be implying here that it was the practice of the church once a week on Sunday to get together and eat together. I think that's possible, although it doesn't... It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, you understand that it could be that they got together to eat together because Paul was leaving and they wanted to hear his last message before they left. So it's hard to say whether was this a ritual that each week, I mean, a practice of theirs that each week they would get together and eat together, or is it that they happen to be eating together because this is a special occasion? It's hard to say. And is it communion that we're talking about? Again, it's sort of hard to say. They got together to break bread but notice the situation. They get together to break bread, and Paul starts talking, and he keeps talking, and he keeps talking, and the room is filled with lamps, and perhaps the atmosphere is getting a little hazy, and he drops, Eutychus falls asleep. Paul goes and gets him, and at this point, maybe Paul realizes, maybe it would be good if we stopped and ate. <laughs> you know, I've been talking for three hours. Maybe people are getting a little hungry here or something. He goes up and breaks the bread, and they eat. So the emphasis seems to be in this passage, not so much they go up and they celebrate the sacramental rite, but he's been talking for a long time. Let's eat before we go any farther. So when you look at all of it and put it together, it doesn't seem to me that the evidence is particularly strong one way or another as to what it is the church did. And I'm not sure that any of the passages those passages that talk about breaking bread that we could say that they were actually talking about what we think of as the Lord's Supper, although they might be. I'm not saying that they're not, but the evidence is um, a little shaky at best. Okay, now, in 1 Corinthians, which is what we want to concentrate on here today, first of all, the minor passage that, that gives us a little something to think about, as Paul is talking about how they ought to flee from idolatry, uh, in chapter 10, in verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharer, sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Well, the picture that Paul seems to have here, I think we need to keep in mind as he's saying this, that th he's extrapolating from the practice of the Lord's Supper as they were doing it to make them think about 
how, what kind of attitude ought you to have towards these ceremonies that involve eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Paul has already said that you should, you don't have to worry about it. Just eat the meat. It's not going to do anything to you. The, an idol isn't anything. There's nothing about the meat that's any different. So it's not that he's concerned that they're going to become somehow ritually tainted or that somehow demonic influence is going to come to them through the meat. He doesn't care whether they eat the meat. But what he cares about is whether they have a blasé attitude toward idolatry. Some of the ones in Corinth, and we've talked about this before, I think, they, they have this sort of sophisticated attitude. We know better than these poor, naive folks over here who say, oh, we shouldn't eat this meat because it's been sacrificed to idols. We have the sophisticated knowledge that an idol isn't anything and it's okay, we're free to eat the meat. But, but what Paul's saying to them, in essence, is I'm concerned that your so-called sophistication is not coming from the fact that you have truly understood that an idol is nothing, but that in fact that you are hearkening back to the days when you used to worship those idols and that you're actually unconcerned about it because idolatry is not that big a deal to you. And let me tell you that idolatry is a big deal. The attitude that I am going to partake of something that has been given to an idol and partake of the Lord's Supper, and I can do both of those things and it's kind of, they're just all the same thing. There's something wrong there, if that's really your attitude. And part of what he's saying to them is, look, recognize that we involve ourselves in this meal. Why do we do it? When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we do it because we're identifying with the body of Christ. We're, we're looking at that and saying, his death, we're remembering it, as he's going to talk about, because it is significant to us. It is his death that we are looking to. We want to be a part of what he has done. We all together, when we partake of the bread and the cup, we are joining together in this thing. We are all seeking to be a part of Christ. So how can you have a blasé attitude towards a ceremonial meal that involves eating meat sacrificed to idols and implying that you're sharing in the idol? You can't be blasé about that. So... In the process here, he is sort of giving this picture, though, that he sees us as, as seeking to share in the body of Christ his death on our behalf and thus becoming, in essence, one body together. We are all a part of his body. We are all sharing in the benefits of his body. And so part of what we are implying when we eat the bread and drink the cup is that we are in this together, that we are sharing in him and thus together are sharing in him. So I don't think he's any, saying anything mystical here because the whole point is there's nothing mystical about this meat. You can go ahead and eat it because there's nothing to it. But the attitude you have toward it is significant because when we, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, if it means something to us, it means that we are joining together with Christ, with each other, in looking to Christ's death. You don't want to be joining together with those who are looking to idols for life. That's not what you want to do. Okay, 
The main teaching that Paul has on the Lord's Supper is in chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Now, I I just want to say right off, I think it's very significant and very important for us to understand that we have no teaching on the Lord's Supper from Paul or anyone that is specifically about the Lord's Supper because they wanted to make sure they got it down in writing exactly what you were supposed to do. Paul is writing about the Lord's Supper here because of a problem that they're having. And really, this writing here is addressing the problem. And we need to keep that in mind. There is a problem, and he's seeking to speak to it. If there hadn't have been the problem, he wouldn't have said anything about the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's not that this is a letter to give them instructions on how the ceremony is to be conducted or anything like that. This is a letter that's setting out to address a particular problem that they have. Now... Paul has passed on to them various what he calls traditions. This chapter starts out, um, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. There are various traditions. And these have to do, I think, when we see him talking about this, it has to do with practices that he is passing on to them. The first part of the chapter, he concerns himself with the question of whether women should have something on their heads when they pray or prophesy in the assembly. So the issue is, what do we do when we get together? Paul, how should we do this? And Paul has given them various instructions on what they ought to do when they get together. So another part of the instructions that he has given them, I think, has to do with the Lord's Supper. He has said there, there is this thing that Jesus did on the night of Passover and what I'd like you to do is something that is related to that. And we'll, we'll see here as we go along. So he has given them instructions about this and we'll talk about that a little later on. What he's doing now, though, is trying to correct the problem that has resulted in their doing what he said. In 17, he says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Now, this is tricky here, but first of all, he has praised them for holding to the traditions, but what he's saying now is, I know that you guys are are doing something that looks like what I told you to do, but I can't praise you in what you're doing, because what you're doing, even though technically speaking you're doing what I said, in fact, it's worse than if you weren't doing it at all. You'd be better not to do it than to do it the way you're doing it. So I can't praise you. And I think what he's getting at is, I know you're having this this meal that involves the Lord's Supper, but you'd be better off not to be doing it than to be doing it the way you're doing it. You're not you're not really following what I told you because what you're doing is something very different. Um, he says, I hear that divisions exist among you. Now, for those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians, your mind might immediately go to what he talks about in the beginning where people are lined up. Some say, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. 
And certainly there are those divisions in the church and they may be related. It may be the same groups that are sort of dividing up. I'm not sure. That would make a certain amount of sense. But in this section, the the basis of the divisions that he's talking about, it doesn't have to do with uh, the group that thinks Apollos is neat or anything like that. The divisions that he's talking about have to do with the haves and the have-nots. We're going to see that as we go through. What's happening when they get together to celebrate this meal is that there is this division happening among them because it has to do with who is it that has the means to bring a really fancy meal and eat big and those who don't have the means to do that and they hardly have anything to eat at all. Well, that's what we're going to see as we go through this here. Remember, this is not the church gets together for a worship service and eats a piece of cracker and drinks a little thing out of a cup. This is a meal. They're getting together to have a meal. And the problem that they're facing is that the way they are conducting themselves when they do this meal is totally out of keeping with what the the Lord's Supper part of the meal is all about. Um, Just a really quick side note here. When he, when he says, in part, I believe it, there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. I think what he's getting at there is something very significant. He, he does not like the attitude on the part of certain people that has led to the division. But I think that he's saying, I recognize that to a certain extent, divisions are going to be inevitable. Because there are going to be those who are approved, that is, those who are tested. These are those whose faith is showing itself to be real in the midst of the tests of life. And there are going to be those who are not, those who are a part of the church for whatever reasons they may have. Certainly in Corinth, this was true. Paul knows very well that there are a number of people in this congregation who are actually quite resistant to the gospel. They would call themselves followers of Jesus, but they really want to have very little to do with the gospel as Paul proclaims it. So he's saying... I recognize that divisions are going to happen. I can see that. Up to a point, it's inevitable because those who are truly following God are always going to stand out to a certain extent from those who aren't. There's always going to be this place where they're not going to be heading in the same direction. Nonetheless, he now he wants to speak a word of warning to those who who in essence, are showing themselves unapproved in the midst of this situation, whose attitude and behavior is very lacking in the signs that they understand what the faith is all about and that it means anything to them. Okay, so it's, a, it's kind of an interesting counterbalance to what he says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians when he says um, that he wants them to be all of the same mind. It's... He's not saying that, hey, if you guys would just lighten up a little bit, everybody could get along. He recognizes, he wants them to be of the same mind in embracing the true gospel. But here here he's acknowledging that that's not necessarily ever going to be the case. I mean, it's always going to be the case that there are going to be some people who are just not going there. And so a certain amount of division, a certain amount of difference is always going to happen. Okay, but... Now he wants to go on and talk about the the real problem. 
um, what is the problem here? He says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Okay. He says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. I think I'm putting the emphasis there. I think what he's saying is, in theory, you're following my instructions and you're meeting together to have a meal that includes these elements from what Jesus did with the bread and the cup. And he's calling, <clears throat> they would call that the Lord's Supper. This is the supper that the Lord instituted and is celebrates the Lord's death and the salvation that he, <coughs> that he has brought. <coughs> Just, <coughs> I'm deeply moved by what I've said here. <coughs> Every time I talk about food, I get all choked up. <coughs> um, okay. So, but I, but I think what he's saying is, you may be calling it the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. I mean, he wouldn't really have anything to do with the supper that you guys are eating. Um, when he says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, is he implying, thank you, is he implying that every time they met, they had communion, that they did the Lord's Supper? In other words, was it a weekly occurrence? Did the church every week um, celebrate the Lord's Supper? I think it's hard to say. It's not unlikely that they did. It sounds that way, although, and he says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That does not have to apply, imply that they ate the Lord's Supper every time. He could be saying something like, when you meet together, and implied to eat the Lord's Supper, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. A shortened, cryptic kind of um, sentence like that is very, very common in the Bible. So um, he could be saying every week when you meet together and eat the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Or he might just mean whenever it is that you get together to eat the Lord's Supper, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. It's still hard to say with any degree of confidence exactly what it is they did. But it might very well have been that they did it each week. Okay. Um, he says in the New American Standard, it says, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. That's not a particularly good translation. Um, the key words here, I think, to understand what's going on is your own supper one is hungry. You shame those who have nothing. The situation, I think, is they're meeting together for a real meal, but everyone is bringing their own meal. You know, it, naturally enough, you pack up your stuff. It's kind of like they come together. They're sort of having a picnic together. And rather than a, a potluck, which, of course, is the sanctified form of eating together, which the sacrament which we will be celebrating next week. Um, I, if I were Garrison Keeler, I'd go off on a hot dish uh, monologue here, but I'm not. Um, 
evidently what they did was they would come together, but each family was responsible for its own food, and they would eat together their separate meals. And evidently what's happening is those, some of the people are treating it as if the main point of this is to have a feast. Not that a celebratory feast is inappropriate. It's not that it's wrong to want to eat. But in this situation, all it meant to them was this is an opportunity for us to have a big meal. So much so that here's another family over here who has very little, and here's a family over here who is presumably wealthier and has a great deal to eat, and they're not even, they're just charging right ahead. They're eating all their stuff and not paying any attention to the fact that this family doesn't have anything to eat at this common meal that they're eating together. Um, so some of them are going hungry. Some of them are coming to this meal that is celebrating the common salvation that we all have in Christ, and some of them are going hungry. And the ones who have a lot are just watching it happen and don't even care. Shaming the ones who have nothing. Evidently, there's a certain, I would picture that there's a certain amount of class distinction here, and that even though they're, they have come together in that they all believe in Christ in theory, the fact is that the ones who are wealthier are really not associating with the ones who don't have as much. They've, they've sort of separated out. You know, this is our group over here, the ones who have a lot to eat, and that's them over there, the ones who don't. And so, in essence, what is meant to celebrate the event that brings life to each one of us and that we share together in is turning out to be an event which only highlights the divisions between us, which we refuse to try to overcome. So... That's the problem as Paul sees it. This is supposed to be a meal that the whole idea is we're all participating because we're in this together and it is only highlighting the fact that we are not in this together. Well, why does it highlight that? How did it come to this? I think what Paul sees as the problem is that many of the people involved in this are not treating it as if it really meant anything. They're not stopping to think, what are we doing here in this meal? And what implications does that have for how we ought to be thinking about each other and, and the way we conduct our lives? He goes on here then to tell them, to remind them what Jesus had done. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul emphasizes the idea that, that this is a remembrance his account is the only one that uses the word remembrance both for the bread and for the cup. And the, in the synoptic gospels, Luke 
is the only one of the synoptic gospel writers who includes the words, do this in remembrance of me. And it's interesting that Luke traveled around with Paul. Uh, so it seems not unlikely that Luke's understanding of what was happening at the night of the Lord's Supper um, at least came about in the same process that Paul did and probably was influenced by Paul's understanding. Paul emphasizing the idea that this is a remembrance. What are we doing here? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We are reminding ourselves that he died on our behalf. That's what it's intended to do. It's not proclaiming it, I don't think, as a tragedy. I mean, it's sober that he died for us, but his death is our victory. I mean, it is, a, it is the death that he died that we might be set free from guilt and death ourselves. So ultimately, proclaiming his death is not a morbid thing. It is a, it is a celebratory thing. This is our salvation. Just as Israel celebrated the deliverance that God brought about from Israel in the Passover. So that's what we're doing when we get together. We are remembering the great thing that God has done for us in that the Son, Jesus, died for our sins so that we might be rescued from sin and death. That's why we're doing it. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Okay, these are very important words, mostly because I think a great part of the church has gone in a very, very wrong direction in understanding what Paul is doing here. Um... At least if we pay attention to the context and what it is that Paul is talking about, he seems to have something very specific in mind, and we have just run with this. Um, what's, what's the situation here? The situation is people getting together for a meal that is supposed to proclaim the death of the Lord this, for our salvation, a meal that he has already described as, as bringing us together, each of us in partaking of it is identifying ourselves with the one man, Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his bringing life for us. And so we're coming together. The ceremony, inasmuch as if it means anything to us, is a great unifier. Each of us is a sinner who needs to be forgiven. Each of us is not going to make it if, if the death of Christ is not applied to our lives and does not rescue us from sin and from death. We, when we eat it together, are saying, we're in this together. We need him. It's great, it's fantastic that he died for us because we would be lost if he had not. And yet, instead of doing that, they're getting together, rich people are kind of gathering together, eating their big meals and ignoring the people that they don't want to have anything to do with. Well, they can't be thinking about what this meal means. And further than that, furthermore, they can't really have a very good perspective about what the gospel is all about, that they would treat those who have nothing in that way anyway. 
I mean, it's not just, it's not that they're desecrating a sacred meal. You know, this is a sacred meal and you're doing it wrong and, and it's sacrilege. It's not that. It's the attitude that they have that would bring them to the place of doing such a thing to begin with. It's faithless. It, they're, they're being selfish and unconcerned with the reality that the meal is supposed to celebrate. They don't care. The fact that it's supposed to celebrate the central event in their lives and in the lives of every one of the people there with them doesn't mean anything to them. If I was to give some food to some of these other folks over here, that means like I would have to hang around with them and I wouldn't get as much to eat. And, I mean, I came here to party, so what good would that? What, good, what fun is it to go to a party and hang around with people like that? I don't mean to constantly be indicating this side of the room. I mean, I don't hang around with people like that either. Us in the middle, we're the good guys. Um, so, when he talks about eating in, in an unworthy manner, the unworthy manner he's talking about is the hypocrisy of eating the meal as if you were celebrating the Lord's Supper when in fact the death of the Lord doesn't mean anything to you and the people that he died for don't mean anything to you. In fact, it's, it's outright rank hypocrisy. You're eating this and implying that somehow you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, but in fact you have nothing to do with him. I mean, what you're actually living out indicates that the faith means nothing to you. Not the real faith. Not the faith that says he died for your sins, and that's what you needed above everything else. And you're the same as everybody else in this room. And therefore, they are just as blessed as you are because each of you has been rescued by the death of Christ. No, that's just not in the picture. And if that's not in the picture, then the gospel itself is not in the picture. You have a, an entirely different picture of what this is all about. Examine yourselves, he's saying. I'm asking you to stop and ask yourself the question, when you go to do this thing, do you mean it? Does this really, do you really believe in this stuff? You're saying you do, but do you really? Or is it just, is it just the merest hypocrisy? That's what he's concerned about. Now let me just stop right there and, and make a very, what I think is a very important comment. In my life, in the various communion things that I have been involved with, the kind of teaching that I always got was, you know, if you eat in an unworthy manner this sacred meal, you are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, which we'll talk about in a second here. And so you had better make sure that you have your act together before you dare to put that stuff in your mouth. You had, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? You had better stop and think through. Have you done anything wrong that you have not told God about? You had better confess it to Him now. Because imagine how the, the judgment that you are going to call down upon yourself if you should have not confessed any sin to God and have the audacity to eat this pure, sacred, sacramental thing. Imagine the anger that God is going to have towards you if you should dare to put it in your mouth and there should be any impurity in you at all. That's the kind of stuff that I got. Um, 
Oftentimes it gets connected with what Jesus said about, you know, you're going to make your offering on the altar and you remember that somebody has something against you. You know, stop. Don't do it. Leave the gift there. Go and reconcile to your brother and then go make your offering on the altar. Well, people take that and say, see, it's the same thing here. If I should remember that there's somebody who has anything against me, I shouldn't eat the bread because that would be hypocrisy and I'd be bringing judgment upon myself. I should abstain and not eat it until I have made everything right everywhere. But that's not what Paul's saying. And notice that those are two very different things. With the thing about going to make your offering, the idea there, I think, is you're going to give this gift to God at the temple. God, here, this is a, this is, represents what I think of you. I'm giving you this offering at the temple. And I think what Jesus is saying is God doesn't want the lamb or the grain or whatever it is you're bringing. He wants you. He wants your heart. So if you're... If on the outside you're giving a gift to God, but inside you're, you hate your brother and you refuse to do anything about it, God doesn't want... And what does he care about the stuff you put on the altar? He hasn't gotten what he wanted. So what Jesus is saying is if you want to give him what he wants, deal with your rotten attitude. That's really what he wants. Here, we're talking about something different. We're talking about a celebration of the the fact that Jesus died for my sins. Rather than thinking, oh my gosh, I had better figure out if I have any unconfessed sins or not, I think the attitude that I should have is I come to the bread reminded of his death on the cross. I mean, what the, the kind of language that ought to be in my head is if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, he who delivered up his son... For us, how will he not freely with him give us all things? That's the attitude, is God has reached out to save us. I may have all kinds of sins in my life that I don't understand about or that I haven't confessed. I'm grateful that Jesus died for them. It's not like I have to clean up my act to come to the table. The idea is I'm grateful that a person with an unclean act like me could find salvation. So, so what Paul is trying to say here is not, here's this ceremony that you had better make sure you're doing right. He's saying, in this ceremony, you're coming together and saying, we want to be a part of the death of Jesus. But I'm asking you to ask yourself whether you really do. Do you, in fact, want to be a part of this, or does it mean anything to you at all? Because if you, if, you play with God. If you dabble in this and say, oh yeah, I'm a part of this, and you're not, that sort of hypocrisy is only going to bring judgment upon you ultimately. Now, the hardest part of this passage for me to understand is what he says next. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Um, I, I'm not quite sure how to put this together. It seems like what he's saying, and I mean, this may be as simple as that, is that he's recognizing that, I mean, this church 
when you read through the two Corinthian letters, there are a lot of problems in this church, a lot of unbelief, hypocrisy, rebellion against the gospel. I mean, this is a troubled church. Um, I think Paul seems to be suggesting here that God is showing his displeasure with what is going on supposedly in his name in the church by certain judgments that have come upon them as a group. I think we need to be careful about making assessments. You know, if a number of us were to get sick or something like that, that somehow that's a judgment of God. Um, That... It's not that simple. But Paul seems to be saying that in this situation, I can recognize that, in fact, the hand of God has been upon you to get your attention, to discipline you, to wake you up and say, you know, what are we doing? What are we really all about here? Um, Picture of what's going on. That's the issue. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment, and the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Wait for one another is not a particularly good translation. It makes it sound like the problem is some people are starting ahead of time, or like we're showing up and we start eating and the other people haven't arrived yet. I mean... I suppose it's just theoretically possible, but since the problem here is not who starts first, but whether you're sharing with those who have less, whether you're hoarding your stuff to yourself. Um, The word that's translated wait for one another here actually is a word that can be translated in a variety of ways. Um, And it could be something more like, very often it can be used to mean something like receive or take into account or something like that. There's a lot of things that it might mean. So he might be saying something more like receive each other or take each other into consideration um, when you come together to eat. It's have each other in mind. Be thinking about each other in this process. When he says, if you're hungry, eat at home, I don't think, see, this was a meal and he's saying to share. He's not saying the guys who have nothing who are hungry, they should have eaten at home, and the rich people, they should have eaten at home, just come together and have the little piece of cracker and the little thing of juice, because this is not supposed to be about eating. He's not saying that, because this is a meal. They were coming together for a meal, and there's no problem with it being a meal. But I think he's being sort of ironic here. Look, if you are so intent on chowing down on this huge amount of food that you cannot share with anybody else there, then eat at home. Take the edge off a little bit so that when you get there, you can afford to share with people. I don't think he's really suggesting that... He's not saying to people, everybody eat at home so that you're not really eating a meal together. He's just saying, "If if you're so hungry that you cannot share with somebody, then... Don't be a glut- at least if you're going to be a glutton, don't do it when you all get together to celebrate your unity together. I mean, do it by yourself at home so that when you come together, you can be in this with everybody else. Okay, so 
What we seem to see here is perhaps a weekly meal, perhaps not, that very very likely Paul himself instituted. He has taken what was a Passover meal that Jesus did, and he has taken this and worked it into a common meal that is not a Passover. It includes Gentiles. Um, and very likely, I think, it's, it's good to keep in mind that the pagan Corinthians, the Gentiles who have become believers here, they would have participated as well in religious meals. I mean, it was just very common in all sorts of religions for you to get together and eat meals that had a religious significance. They eat the meat sacrificed to idols and so on. That was, I mean, this was all a part of the mystery religions and the various things that were going on. So this was something they were used to. You know, we're going to have a, a religious meal. We're going to have a feast where there is religious significance to it. And Paul has taken the Jewish Passover and the pagan uh, feasts, and he sort of put together here a ceremony, a meal, which includes the bread and the cup to, to turn those meals, common meals, into a celebration of Christ's death. So they're eating together, they're celebrating, they're having a feast, but they should be celebrating it together, and he's concerned that when they get together, they understand the significance of what they're doing. Um, now, there are several questions that I think are relevant as we look at this. First of all, and you're just going to have to forgive me, I'm, as I usually do, I run on, and I'm going to run on a little bit here because I want to finish this up. First of all, when it comes to Paul's traditions, how binding are they on us? How much obligation should we feel to do things the way Paul had them doing them at the time? So, in particular, it seems pretty clear that Paul had them, perhaps weekly, perhaps not, getting together and eating a meal all together in which they had the bread and the cup. Should we see ourselves as bound to do that? Um, that is not necessarily an easy question for me, and that, that may seem strange, because on the one hand, I am, I am like one of Paul's biggest fans, if you understand what I mean. There are those in Christianity who have have taken the attitude that, you know, I don't like Paul or, you know, I like Jesus, but I'm not sure what to do with Paul. I don't like his attitude and so on. That is not me. I, I am firmly convinced of the authority that Paul claimed and, and his preeminence, really. The apostle to the Gentiles, I am one of those Gentiles to, for whom he was an apostle. So what he thinks means a great deal to me. And if he says something's true, then I want to believe it. And if he says something is what I ought to do, then I want to do it. But the question is about that ought. What exactly is he doing with these traditions? Um, I see the traditions that he passed on as his way of trying to take the eternal truths of the gospel and give the people a way of working them out as they come together. 
but it's in a particular cultural setting in which he's doing that. The first half of this chapter is a good example. Part of his tradition has to do with them getting together and praying and so on, and he's giving them instructions on what should the women do. And we'll talk about this passage probably somewhere along the line. But let me just say right now that I think he is not saying that it is an eternal principle that women need to put something on their heads when they pray or prophesy. There's another principle to which he's appealing, and he's saying in your cultural setting, the way you should apply that principle is that women should have something on their heads when they pray or prophesy. Because of the cultural practice of women putting something on their heads and what it would have communicated if they took it off. What they would have been saying if they did not have something on their heads would have been something bad in that culture, and that's why Paul is saying, I want you to have something on your head. But I would argue that it is not the practice. The fact that the practice that Paul laid down was for them to have something on their head does not mean that, therefore, to obey Paul, women need to have something on their heads when they pray or prophesy. Because the issue is, what is the message I'm sending in that culture? Well, we could talk more about that, but what I'm saying is his traditions are not, this is the divinely inspired ritual that all should follow for all time, but rather, this is, these are my instructions for how you guys ought to handle things given your situation. So, um, my goal is trying to understand what Paul was shooting for. What, what, is it, what are the truths that he believed in and what did he want us to be believing and practicing together? Which makes it a little more complicated to, answer, to ask the question, how exactly do you live this out? Now, you may remember that Jack... Uh, several weeks ago in talking about rituals like baptism and the Lord's Supper and so forth, he said something about how, you know, hey, I think if we wanted to, we, we could just make up our own. I'm sympathetic up to a point with what Jack was saying there. This is a celebratory meal. It is not a sacrament. To a certain extent, it is built on the existing cultures. It meant something to the Jews for one reason, because of their association with the Passover. It meant something to the Gentiles for another reason, because of their familiarity with the, the sacred meal and that sort of thing. So, certainly, I think there's room for saying, in our particular cultural setting, um, what makes sense for us as people. I think there's room for that. On the other hand, though, for me at this point, as I think about this, it seems to me that it's hard to get around the fact that the bread and the cup are the symbols that Jesus chose at the, on the evening of the premier event in history. Jesus had the ceremony with the bread and the cup. It, it has a richness of meaning going all the way back to the Passover and celebrating the deliverance of Israel from Egypt culminating in our deliverance from sin and death, that it seems to me that we would be hard put to come up with another ceremony that had as much going for it as the one that we've already got. So um, so I'm less inclined to be 
you know, if we're thinking of, you know, our new ceremony is going outside, uh, letting off balloons and dancing around in a circle or something like that, uh, although we will be doing that next week. Um, so bring your balloons. Um, I mean, that would be fine, but I, it seems to me that we already have something with a certain, that that has a significance that we is not artificially imposed. The problem at the same time, though, I have to admit, is the Lord's Supper has a tradition to it, and not all of that tradition is good. I mean, when we celebrate together that we have something in common, we also have to recognize that the the Lord's Supper, which Paul talks so much about, the emphasis on unity, has become one of those things that has divided us greatly. I mean, we get together on Sunday, and if we have communion together, it's like this whole set of little groups together, each one getting together and saying, we do it right. They don't, we do. Jesus gave us specific instructions for how this is supposed to happen, and everybody else is messing up, but we're not. If that's what it's become, I think we would be better off to just skip it and and just just try to keep reminding ourselves what the Lord's Supper is supposed to remind us about the death of Jesus and what it means in our lives, to just keep talking about it and not worry about a ceremony that's only going to cause trouble. So I sort of am ambivalent about it. But I'm not so ambivalent that I don't think we should do it. And in fact, um, I have made a unilateral executive decision that I have no right to make, but I just did anyway, that next week we're all getting together to eat, have a big meal. So we're going to have communion while we do it. Um, Notice the idea of having a meal together um, is a great idea. We're, we're going to do that next week. But we are in a different cultural setting, I think. Um, I know, at least in my family situation, it would be a great burden on us to say, every weekend we're going to have a big potluck, we're all going to get together and eat together. There would be There would be a certain... It could, it could be a good thing for us to, to have that experience together so often, and I don't, recognize, I don't deny that that's the case. I think it is. But I also recognize that we're a big group with a lot of people coming from a lot of diverse places, and I think it is appropriate to try to work out what is going to work for the people that you've got. So... Even if they did do it every week, I'm not sure at this point that I would be in favor of us doing it every week. Um, I, I'm, and I don't know. I don't think you're all ready for that yet. I'm, I don't know that I'm ready for that. To go, you know, it's like to go from a group that hasn't celebrated communion together in several years from, from having a, a ritual meal every weekend, um, I think we might get whiplash or something from... <laughs> from moving so suddenly. Um, So, at any rate, those are the things that have gone together to create the, the, the 
first of all, the theological underpinnings of my attitude and, and some of the other leaders around here, the way we think about communion, and also some of the ambivalence about it. Um, I have to admit that I personally, I am not a ritualistic person, and I'm not a good one to consult on these things because, as I have told some of you before, I had a really hard time. When I became a Christian, I realized that it involved me going to church, and I just about did not survive the process. I mean, church, sitting there and standing and sitting and praying and singing the songs and all that kind of stuff, I know for a lot of people it's a very meaningful experience. To me, it was just agony. I just couldn't wait for it to be over. That's the kind of person I am. We have managed to get this church to have so little ritual and stuff involved with it that I can almost stand to be here. I mean, that's, 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 how, that's where things are with me. But I recognize that not everybody is that way, and I'm not trying to make this place be the way I would do it. And I don't even necessarily defend my attitude. I don't think it's necessarily good. It's just where I'm starting. That's, that's what I have to overcome. So maybe I'm the one would get, who would get whiplash if we <laughs> move too fast here. And, um, but part of what I'm saying is there's that part of me, but there is also the fact that I think that we, are, we should appropriately have a certain suspicion of and caution when it comes to religious ritual because... As I was saying to someone last week, I think we can look at even the religion that God himself definitely ordained for Israel was mostly an albatross around their neck. Very few of them actually practiced that religion and got a whole lot out of it. It, it was so easy for the practice to replace the life, if you know what I mean, for the, for the ritual of you know, eating the right stuff and all of that kind of thing to replace what it was supposed to be about. And I think in the history of the Christian church, that is largely what has happened. We have, I mean, we have gone from Paul saying, y'all ought to get together and have a meal and do the, like the bread and the cup thing, like Jesus did, to remember his death, to having a guy in robes with, you know, swinging the incense and, and ceremonially putting wafers on people's tongues and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's... Where did all of that stuff come from? And, and, and frankly, we have, m many of us have gotten the idea that that was what it was all about. That was why Jesus died on the cross, so we could have communion. I mean, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I mean, that actually has become the focus for a, a lot of people. And so for me, we, as a group, tend to be somewhat allergic to too much religion. This is not a sacrament, but just something for our benefit to remember what Jesus did. And religious practices can bite you back. I think we just sort of move kind of slowly in this kind of direction. But we are not anti-communion. We are not anti-religious practices. And, in fact, as I said, next week together we'll have a simple communion together along with our meal. Okay, so I've gone really long and I need to give you time to ask questions and we don't have the time for questions. Does anyone have a really burning issue or question that they'd like to raise 
If not, there will be time for more discussion later on. Dale? Yes, it's burning. Uh, verse uh, 23. Yes. Um, he says, I have received. I assume that's past tense, sometime in the past. Uh-huh. And he says, I have delivered. Yes. I suppose that's past tense. Yes. Sometime in the past. Yes. And he says, I have received of the Lord. Uh-huh. Is that Jesus or God? Um, right. What is he talking about there? I think what he's saying is, we know that Paul was was taught personally by Jesus, that Jesus himself met with Paul. I mean, obviously, the post-resurrection, risen Jesus, met with Paul and taught him. He claimed that his message came from Jesus himself. So, obviously, Paul was not there in the upper room. I think he received it probably, when he says from the Lord, probably it was in his instructions from Jesus himself, he was taught about what happened there. Although maybe he got it from the other apostles, hard to say. But he wasn't there, he received it, and then he delivered it to the churches that he teaches, that the churches that he founded, he has passed it on to them. So they have heard this before. And Paul's saying, I received it and delivered it to you, and remember, this is what it is. That's what I would understand. Okay, well, if you do have questions about this, um, feel free to bring them up uh, another time, and uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing you next week.